Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. For this show, it's great to welcome back Polly McKenzie, Chief Executive of the Think Tank Demos, and prior to that, founder of the charity, the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute, as well as working for Nick Clegg from 2006 to 2015. Welcome to the show, Polly. And to kick off, I mean, I guess think tanks often spend their time talking about how trends in society and the economy are going to alter the lives of others. But with the coronavirus crisis, I imagine that Demos not only is thinking about that, but it's also something that's directly affecting the way you and your colleagues work. I notice you, for example, appear to be perched on the edge of some stairs as we're recording this, which is probably presumably <laughs> not a workplace. So how has Demos been adapting to these very strange circumstances we're now in? Yeah, I do not usually work from the staircase, but my husband is on a phone call and my daughter is playing the piano and my son is in the kitchen doing arts and crafts so this is the safest place to be to talk um i think uh, i thought you had three children polly have you not have you lost one then my sons are doing arts and crafts All right. in the kitchen. <laughs> i was worried for a moment no no i haven't i haven't forgotten one of them um he's just the little one is much e uh, much easier to look after because he doesn't you know scream and shout or have any you know trying to adapt to working from home is challenging but certainly you know we are we do research and we make up policies that that is quite easy actually to do remotely on you know your conference call platform of choice it's quite different from trying to make things or sell things uh, and so we feel incredibly lucky um from a just practical perspective people are settling in you know we've got people slightly better computer equipment in some cases and, and those kinds of things but it's it's really easy the question of what we do and what's the way in which we can serve society i guess is is much is much bigger um yeah. and we've seen a lot of think tanks do some incredibly brilliant yeah. fast turnaround work looking at for example resolution foundation have looked at the the welfare system the economic shock as have the institute for fiscal studies institute for government has been doing work uh at, at what are the implications for the civil service or how government operates um at demos we do um policy that involves people so we always involve people in the process and so because that's our model it isn't just clever people sitting in a room being expert and coming up with ideas we aren't able to kind of just dive in with the answers um and so we think our role to play will be working with people with citizens over the course of the next few months to try and work out what the what the new social contract is i think after we emerge from this it has changed so many people's perceptions about risk about efficiency about the value of different kinds of work, about the fragility of their own lives, um, about the, the relationships we have with each other, what we owe each other, I think, um, uh, whether it's from a business or, or a kind of societal perspective. So I think enormous work is going to have to be done. That isn't on the front line. It's not making ventilators. It is not curing people in hospital or caring for the dying. And I, I mean, I, I think everybody finds it hard actually to get through the day just thinking about that there is a front line and we are, you know, I'm sitting on some stairs. I'm so far away from actual pain or suffering at the moment to, I think, to be told that, um, that we can save lives by staying at home and watching TV is such an extraordinary privilege. 
when there are other people who who are who are putting themselves at risk exposing themselves to to this virus um and you know some of whom who will die doctors and nurses on the front line and and I don't know, it sort of robs us of our agency. It's quite hard to deal with the sense that all we can do is kind of wait for the other people to fix it. It's quite humbling, humiliating almost. I think lots of people find it quite hard. I find it quite hard. Um, but I think there is, there are things that all of us can do that go beyond staying at home and watching TV. Mm. And that's trying to think about what comes next. Yeah, I was um, sat at home on the sofa, picking out on some chocolate and watching TV last night. And... It was really weird because part of me was saying to myself, this is all fine. You're actually doing something honourable here to help people. Um, but then when I stopped watching some reruns of old editions of Taskmaster and then switched over to the news, you very quickly are reminded just how brave so many people are. And you know, the word heroes can get quite overused, but I think it really is applicable at the moment. And it made me slightly think back because I'm a historian by training actually to the political fallout after the first world war this whole idea that there should be a home fit for heroes and you know, what should the role of government look like uh, to provide that and I, I, it, it feels to me like we're, we're sort of heading towards maybe a similar political debate we've seen it a little bit already with questions about um, people who are working in the NHS who are being heroic but don't have a permanent right to live in the country at the moment should we simply say, as part of, thank you for all of the amazing stuff you're doing, putting your lives at risk, yes, you can have a permanent home here if you wish yeah, uh, afterwards. Um, what, what's your feel about, because I, I know Martin Kettle did a piece in The Guardian a few days ago, which actually I discussed on the previous episode of this podcast with Phil Cowley, that not always do massive traumatic events result in much of a change in society and the economy? Sometimes they do, but not always. What's your sort of feel at this early stage? Is this going to be a real epoch-changing event that, you know, history books will end up with chapters that end in 2019 and new eras that start in 2020? Or is this going to be maybe less dramatic than it feels at the moment? Well, I I'm going to slightly cop out of giving an answer because I think we can't possibly know yet. Um, I think we do know that the sort of Trumpian forecast that it'll be, you know, over by Easter and we can all get back to, you know, church and shopping or whatever our kind of choice activity is, uh, is obviously false. But, you know, will this be three months? Will it be 18 months? What are the prospects for a vaccine? Do you, do you shift to this idea which... So sort of quite compelling this idea that we do antibody tests and the people who've who've had it and are therefore immune can go about their daily lives but then creates a, a bizarre two-tier sized society with incentives for people to go out and catch it in order to escape from from their home all very strange uh this could play out in so many different ways that both the, the scale of the economic shock uh, is is unknowable at this stage. I mean, we just know it's somewhere between vast and unmeasurable, um, and the scale of the societal shift. Again, it it depends because if we last without offices for eighteen months, you can see a lot of corporate um, uh, facilities managers going. Hang on, we don't really need an office. Mm. What we need is a really plush meeting room that we use occasionally. But if it's three months, then nobody will. You, people won't make those shifts. Um, 
uh, how long can shops or restaurants or pubs survive without any revenue? Three months is really quite a different prospect from a year or 18 months. And, and so will our high streets be transformed? Will we all shift to living 90% of our lives online? I guess it just depends on, on the timing. Um, what's, what's certainly clear is that the impact will be unequal um that those people and it's not just about heroes in the nhs are exposing themselves of course it is also about the fact that uh if richer people are far more likely to be able to work from home it's poorer people who don't have space to work from home even if they can who don't have space for their kids to do their homework you know we talk about a, an educational gap opening up over the school holidays this thing called learning loss where the kids from more deprived backgrounds come back to school in September further behind their peers. We're now talking about you know, potentially six months out of school and the impact that will have huge. So the unequalness of this is certain. And it's, I guess it's that, you know, a rising tide, you know, takes, takes the, the, I don't know, I don't, I don't know where to take this metaphor. Um, <laughs> takes the low hanging fruit. <laughs> Uh, the low-hanging fruit gets away on the I'm sure that the listeners understand exactly in a flood or uh, yeah I, I i need to work on this metaphor um but and and it's though when the when the waters recede right it's the people you know people like you and me right we have a house that is a set effect on stilts mm. uh, and protected and it's other people who will be washed away and affected by this and that and so and the longer it lasts the worse that will be the worse that differential impact will be um, yeah, Warren Buffett, and... the um, the US investor, has a phrase about when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked, which I've never quite understood, but feels it does sort of illustrate that point that at the moment it really shows up who, for example, has a little bit of savings and who doesn't, who has a little bit of extra space at home. So when you can find that bag of pasta in the shops, you can stock up. A little bit more food because you're eating more at home than than, than, than out of the house at the moment and so on. But it, it really brings home, I think, in a much more direct way to a lot of people the the sort of inequalities there are in society and what a huge difference having a bit of a personal safety net makes to your ability to lead your life as freely as you wish. Um, it, it was interesting yeah. you you mentioned about. Um, you know, what will three months or a longer period of time do to businesses and so on? Because I guess one big risk is that there's a lot, there are many sectors which are massively dependent on Christmas. So you think about uh, toys or books, those are both sectors where a very large proportion of their sales in a whole year happens at Christmas and therefore to some extent are less affected at the moment because it's a natural fallow period. But I think the economic impact could be much greater if it extends through to Christmas and therefore hits all of those other sectors as well. And um, in terms of thinking through what the policy lessons might be, I guess, as you say, in many ways, it's too early to make judgments, but presumably you're beginning to make decisions about what policy areas that Demos thinks is particularly worth studying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, one project which we were already working on, but where the the kind of the the landscape has shifted to make it even more important is, is the future of the tax system so before this crisis hit we had twin problems one is that the tax base is dwindling in a range of ways for example the shift away from employment to self-employment 
because self-employment is taxed a bit less, though that may now change, um, uh, leads to a reduction in the in the income tax base. Uh, the shift uh, to more efficient cars uh, and the kind of political inability to raise petrol taxes is leading to a, a dwindling of that tax base, um, which is you know huge. And we know that if we move to electric cars, there will then be no petrol tax revenue. It's a good thing for the climate, but bad if you're worrying about where the money comes from. Mm. Um, then globalization makes it harder to get hold of the profits from companies. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try, but we have to recognize that it is harder. And um, so a range of ways in which tax base is dwindling. Meanwhile, demands on public services across the whole of the West actually are, um, are increasing because of a demographic shift, uh, older and older people. Also, healthcare technology is pushing up the cost of healthcare, making us healthier, which is good, but more expensive. A whole range of different ways in which our expectations and also our demand and need for public services is rising. So uh, estimates vary, but that means that probably by 2030, you're looking at about a hundred billion pound gap between what we raise and what we spend. Now, a hundred billion, used to sound like a lot of money nowadays it's the amount uh, by which the government you know just writes a check to help people every five minutes but nevertheless i think it will shift this conversation even further to how on earth do you where do you get the money from to pay for the public services that you want uh, one of the emerging insights from this crisis is how having hyper efficiency in both your private and public sectors means that you don't have the resilience to deal with a crisis because you haven't got stockpiles because you're too busy with your just-in-time delivery and you know little supermarkets don't have stock rooms those kinds that level of uh, right through to there not being gowns and gloves in a stock room at hospitals um but if you're going to have less efficiency fine that's a choice it means you have to pay more um where will the money come from who will pay so what we're doing at Demos, because as I said, we always do public engagement, deliberation, participation in a kind of range of different methods for our projects, is we're doing a set of deliberative workshops with uh, probably a few hundred people in total um, to talk about what a, what a future tax settlement might be. Rishi Zunek has kind of foreshadowed this one thing about self-employment, that actually if people expect the same protections, but yeah, from pandemics, but you know, in general, people expect the same protections, they should probably pay the same tax rates. The same could be applied to banks or capital or land or wealth, or a whole range of different things. I think we it's going to be even more important that we reconsider our tax system. And we have to do that and we have to take people with us. You know, we in, um, uh, you and I, Mark, in, you know, liberal Democrat kind of federal policy, endlessly kind of sort of, Think that it's great to come up with taxes that are virtuous and sound economically sound and and who cares if the people support them or not i remember even once at a federal policy committee hearing somebody saying the thing that makes the liberal democrats distinctive is we're not afraid to be unpopular and i thought well yeah <laughs> we've certainly yeah, managed well at being unpopular over the years that's uh, but, but I, I think you're right there is a uh, one of the things that has often probably partly propelled some of those views about you know who cares whether it's popular or not as long as it's right is then a belief that sometimes you need to be willing to start with an unpopular viewpoint but you can try and persuade people 
And obviously the particular challenge the Lib Dems face is as quite a small political party, we don't actually have much airtime to try and persuade people. But that nonetheless is not a reason to give up completely. And I think very often the answer is actually to say, well, how can you frame a policy that people might disagree with in a way that at least it matches their values? And that gives you a bit of an opening to try and persuade them. And it does feel like there is a huge, much, much greater willingness for people to think about how do we get high quality, well-funded public services as opposed to, oh my goodness, the government is incompetent, I don't want anything to do with them. Um, and a fair chunk of the people who are sort of quite hostile to the idea of the big, big roles for big government are obviously on the right and not people we would particularly seek to appeal to as a party because they have very different values from us. But actually it is one of the long-standing liberal themes as well is to be suspicious of big government power and I think one of the challenges for us as a party is that I mean at the moment we are probably all cheering on to varying degrees a government ordering banning any assemblies of more than two people I mean at any other point in our history when a government did that liberals were outraged and frequently organizing deliberately meetings of more than two people to challenge that law so i think there's a big question for our civil liberties when it is literally a matter of life and death as to why some restrictions are being imposed rather than a fear story that's being whipped up uh, as to what the what the outlook is on that and I, I guess quite a lot of these issues around civil liberties probably you grappled with quite a lot during the time in coalition government because there are actually quite a few impressive reforms that we secured but obviously quite a lot of um right-wing Tories who weren't so keen <laughs> on what we are doing does, thinking back to some of those debates in 2010 to 15 does that give you any sort of sense of what the civil liberties case therefore might be to make now so I, I think the first thing to say is that th this is just different right I mean that that sort of old liberal te liberalism tenet which is that you can do what you like as long as you don't harm other people it's really clear that I, I, I can do what I like as long as it doesn't harm other people because the problem is that going outdoors is probably going to harm other people and and so there's a really solid liberal case for these laws in this time and people I think on the on the kind of the Corbynista left are going you see we were right all along the government should be spending billions and billions and owning everything and you're like, well, actually, this maybe you were right, maybe you weren't right. I don't think you can claim that this is a victory because the Conservatives haven't changed their minds about how much tax or spending-ish there should be in normal times. They just have a view, which we should in fact welcome and celebrate, that in time of extraordinary crisis, the government should act because it's the only, it's the only thing that can. That doesn't mean they now think that the government should own the commanding heights of industry throughout the next 100 years. So I think we have to be um, uh, really clear that these are extraordinary circumstances um, and that the government response should be different. And that, that isn't a threat to our, our values, whether your values are uh, basic liberalism values or whether they are values that you believe in an entrepreneurial state or they are the values that you believe in um, the kind of freewheeling private sector so um, these are extraordinary times let's not freak out about the fact that our liberties have been curtailed in a in a in a horrifying way you know what the thing that strikes me is 
God, life's so much easier to live in a liberal state. The demands on the government to like opine about whether somebody is allowed to go to the shops for an Easter egg versus what exactly is an essential item and, uh, you know, is a yoga mat essential? Well, uh, am I protecting my health and well-being or am I? All of it. You just think, oh, I just want to go back to normal life where nobody pretends that the government should have an opinion about this stuff. Um, uh, but yeah. when, but I think the, the key thing for liberals to argue for in terms of of, of this response, though, is that it has to be short lived. Mm. It has to be, and and for the government to introduce powers that will last two years by default strikes me as a mistake, and and preventing Parliament from meeting strikes me as a mistake. Parliament is perfect. You know, if the cabinet can meet virtually, Parliament can meet virtually. Like, come on. It's ridiculous. And ensuring that there is proper and effective scrutiny of government and accountability for these powers and votes that can happen to reconfirm the powers on a regular basis whilst the situation lasts strikes me as essential. Uh, and I think we should be loud, loud, loud in our in our campaigning voice for that. And yeah. and I think in, in doing that, um, actually, I think Lib Dem parliamentarians have had a little bit of success in terms of joining with others to put the pressure on the government to have more accountability for the emergency powers than the government originally intended. One thing that strikes me is it's important that we justify our civil liberty stance, not only on the basis of the principles of civil liberties, which will resonate with one chunk of people, but also that we use the pragmatic arguments which help us win over more people to that point of view. So one thing I found is quite helpful when discussing this with people who don't instinctively react to the oh civil liberties yes of course argument is that being able to hold the government to account makes for better government. You know there is a deeply pragmatic reason for wanting ministers to have to face questioning regularly because it really puts them on their toes and it means they have to think harder about what's happening and as a result can do better. Um, and I'm mindful of the fact that, you know, we love analogies with the Second World War uh, in the media and in the public discourse at the moment. During the Second World War, it's worth remembering that Parliament not only ousted one Prime Minister, but also debated at least two votes of no confidence in another Prime Minister that yeah. you can you can have parliamentary scrutiny and it's helpful to have parliamentary scrutiny even in the most adverse of circumstances. I, I couldn't agree more and I think largely the tone of that parliamentary scrutiny was was good. Mm. You know there were some examples of uh, kind of uh, hysterical nonsense from from opposition benches and and defensive unhelpful blocking responses from ministers but largely, you know, you've, ministers came forward with ideas. The opposition said, well, this is great. Thank you for doing this. I, I've got some additional ideas. And also, can you tell me some more about this thing? Because I think you might be wrong. And the minister said, great, I will, I will take those away and come back with them. And I think it was pressure that led to, um, not just from opposition benches, actually, but also from conservative backbenches, that led to, you know, uh, this unprecedented scheme for the self-employed. And it is pressure and scrutiny that leads them to come forward with um, measures for charities, for example. Uh, you know, I saw the Children's Society saying today that they're losing a million pounds a month because of the cancellation of fundraising events and activities, and that is just not covered by any of the government schemes. It, it is absolutely 
absolutely right to keep scrutinizing them, complaining, mm. asking questions, being obstreperous, because it forces them even to ask the right questions of the civil servants and, and to get better. We just, we have to also be kind to people who are facing huge strain, huge difficulty, the personal kind of burden of, you know, I, I don't like Boris Johnson uh, even a tiny bit, but to be the prime minister who told millions of people that they weren't allowed to leave their home, yeah. except for, you know, that, that, nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to be the health secretary responsible for an NHS that is announcing hundreds of people dying every day and buying ventilators. You know, they made a lot of mistakes and, and they, if they had put just 10% of the preparation they put into no deal Brexit, into the preparation for for pandemic response we we would be in a much better situation but we can't go back and and there are questions which i think should just be left to the public inquiry that will come after this we have to be challenging but kind absolutely and as you say and a public inquiry almost certainly will follow and there will be plenty of opportunities for more traditional politics um, when that happens and but for the moment there is a really valuable role politicians can play in asking questions um, just yeah. to wrap up then a lot of people at the moment I guess have more time for reading than usual and um, so is there any particular <laughs> book about either politics or policy that you've read recently that you'll particularly recommend uh, all of the back catalogue of demos I can strongly endorse we are releasing a new piece from our archive every single day, including work about sleep, which feels very pertinent, work about the value of expertise. Um, I'm currently reading a book called Nervous States, but I can't for the life of me remember what, who it's by, uh, an academic, um, which is a, a, about how feeling and emotion took over the world, which is a topic that uh, I find intriguing and interesting. So I, I'm only halfway through it, but it seems pretty I'm just hitting Google now at uh, William Davies, and I'll include a link to the book in the show notes. Uh, and my well, but also you could read the entire back catalogue of Georgette Hare, because there's nothing quite as escapist as uh, the Regency. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I will include a show notes uh, in the show notes some links to, to possible reading for people. Thank you very much for your time this morning, perched on the stairs, Polly, and for the musical accompaniment in the background that listeners may have been able to hear uh, from your family on the piano. Uh, and wish you and both your colleagues at Demos and your family all the best until we speak again. Yeah.